We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi Craig, how are you going? I'm well thanks Courtney, how are you? Oh, good, thank you. We are outside a rural Perth hospital near my work, so thanks for coming out this far. Yeah, um, a bit different to, to online or um, where we normally meet up, but um, we're here because we have a, a couple of guests from Royal Perth that are going to talk about one of their, their randomised trials that they're conducting. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so I believe we were talking with Stephen McDonald. Yes, Dr. correct. Stephen McDonald. Dr. Stephen McDonald. Um, and and John Jonathan Bircham. Bircham. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So Stephen is one of the chief uh, investigators for the randomised control trial called Arise Fluids and they will explain all about what this particular project is. But yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's a really, really exciting project that has a lot of potential to do mm. a lot of good with uh, sepsis patients. Yeah, yeah. Which, which as you'll hear is a very serious condition yeah. um, that, that can kill people quite easily. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, it's definitely well above my pay grade. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> you have to yeah. be a natural doctor for that, yeah. not like one of our kind of doctors, like a real doctor. A real doctor. <laughs> not an academic doctor. That's right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, should we let uh, the, the gentleman um, describe their, their study in more detail? I think so. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, uh, Stephen and Jono. It's nice to have you guys on the podcast today. Uh, do you guys want to briefly introduce yourself, who you are and, and what you do at the moment? So my name is Stephen McDonald. I'm um, an emergency physician and a clinical academic um, and adjunct at UWA in emergency medicine. Yep. And I'm uh, Jono Bircham, I'm the nurse manager for emergency research at Royal Perth and at the Centre for Clinical Research in Emergency Medicine. Right. So you guys are both in medicine, was it something that you always wanted to do or just well, decided? I'm a nurse. Degree? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm an medicine, emergency nurse. In medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So was it something that you just did straight away from school? You decided to yeah, go into medicine? Yeah, I did medicine. medicine in, so when I did medicine, which was a while ago. Mm -hmm. It was uh, straight from school. So uh, I went to med school when I was 18 yep. um, in Scotland. Um, oh, cool. So I did all my undergraduate uh, there, worked as a junior doctor there. And I've been mm -hmm. in Australia probably for the last 20 odd years. Ooh, did all, to, my, all my specialty training here. I've got to ask what part of Scotland you're from. Uh, Glasgow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, my wife's from Fife, so. All right. Yeah, yeah opposite side. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've liked Glasgow. I've been there a few times. Yeah, very good. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Always wanted to be a nurse? Uh, well, straight out of high school into yeah. uh, nursing at Curtin and then um, postgrads around the traps in emergency um, care. Yeah, mostly I did, did a bit of ward nursing, but then once you get to ED, just stayed there forever because that's kind of where my passion lies. And I uh, wound up in research when I met Stephen at Armadale Hospital probably seven years ago. Mm. Did a bit of clinical and a bit of research. Mm. Awesome. So you worked at Armadale Hospital as well for how long? I was there for 12 years. Mm. Oof. What was it like down there? Uh, it was a, a great experience. We, um, Over the time I was there, the hospital sort of really grew from so, being, um, you know, you know, a reasonably, you know, small hospital um, to, uh, you know, quite a busy, um, you know, urban general hospital. Um, and when I went there, um, uh, we, I set up the uh, some research there. They were interested in actually getting some research up and running. And uh, we always like to think, you know, we punched above our weight, actually. We <laughs> produced some really good research outputs and the hospital was really supportive of us. And, um, you know, uh, we... We were able to bring on some, um, you know, research staff and create some infrastructure to do some emergency research there, which is which was really good. Cool. What was the project? 
Uh, we had a number of projects. We did. Um, we participated in a number of um, national multicenter trials. So things like um, uh, the Pneumothorax trial, Pneumothorax trial, um, which was looking at um, uh, ways of managing spontaneous pneumothorax. So that was something we did. The redback um, spider antivenom trial, mm -hmm. um, Australian snake bite project. Yep. Yep. Um, and as well, we ran a few sort of um, just single site investigator initiated studies there as well. So um, yeah, it was quite quite good and quite productive. So what, what kind of um, drew both of you to research? Because I feel like there's only ever a small portion of doctors that end up doing research, in like quite a significant portion of their, their career. So what was it? What, what drew you in? Yeah, so I think it varies on what um, medical specialty you're in. A lot of a lot of the a lot of specialties, um, you know, you require you to do some research really to get into a training position, say in something like cardiology or oncology or neurology. Um, emergency medicine is a sort of newer specialty, and it probably it's fair to say historically has has been more focused on service delivery. Um, but research has always been something that uh, has been. Um, you know, uh, there's been people interested in doing that because as a new specialty, we've got to develop our own evidence base for practice. Um, and in my situation, I was fortunate to really um, be around as a trainee, advanced trainee in emergency medicine around the time when they were setting up um, the Centre for Clinical Research in Emergency Medicine. So that was really a collaboration between um, UWA and at the time Weimar, now the Perkins Institute. Um, and also at the time, Royal Perth Hospital and subsequently some of the other hospitals like Fiona Stanley or Fremantle at the time. Um, but one of the things that within CCREM was there was an opportunity f as a trainee to get involved in doing some research. Um, so I um, took, took on this kind of new position that they'd created, not really knowing exactly what I was getting into, um, but I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I find that um, it, it, it was a really nice complement to um, clinical care um, being able to think about a problem in a sort of deeper way. Um, but also, you know, when you're on the floor seeing patients and you've got uncertainties about how to manage things, um, you know, that really sort of drives your curiosity around, well, how do we actually solve these problems? And so um, I, I sort of got into it. I guess I got the bug. I really enjoyed the working with other people. I mean, research can be hard work and sometimes it can be, you know, a bit frustrating. Um, and, but, it can also, but it can also be, you know, I think it's actually a team sport. And I think the one thing you, you learn very quickly is you can't really do anything by yourself. Um, so the ability to collaborate and form relationships, um, you know, both within our specialty, but also out with, with other people is something I actually really enjoy. Um, and it's probably what, you know, keeps, keeps me motivated. I didn't realize that emergency medicine as a research area was a, a new field. That seems mm. crazy to me. Yeah, I didn't realize. So how long ago <laughs> was that, that that it started its own specialty? So emergency medicine in um, Australia has been officially recognized, um, I think, since about the mid-1980s. So the College oh. of Emergency Medicine was founded in 1983. Mm. Yeah. And I think... Uh, around 1986 yeah. um, was actually the specialty of emergency medicine was you know recognized um, by the AMC as yeah. as, a, as a specialty and the, uh, the model has been um, you know in other parts of the world emergency medicine has had a longer history particularly in North America mm -hmm. um, in the United Kingdom emergency medicine sort of grew out of you know the old accident and emergency mm -hmm. which was really a surgical subspecialty, but that actually mm -hmm. dates back to the 1960s. Um, and it's, it tends to be more developed in sort of the English-speaking countries. Um, other parts of the world, you know, emergency medicines, you know, it does exist, but it's not necessarily recognised as a unique, distinct specialty in its own right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think really, you know, within Australia and New Zealand context, you know, we're into our fifth decade now. Um, and I think probably we spent the first few decades kind of really establishing, you know, our clinical footprint. Um, but I think many of us recognize that really part of being a, a, a clinical specialty is actually developing and curating our own evidence base for practice. Um, and I think that certainly in the last 10 years or so, we've seen um, a real um, upswing in 
both the um, amount of activity, but also I think the quality of the research that's coming out of um, you know emergency departments across across Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting area because you guys you're the front line, and a lot of your patients that you see end up going to, you know through to another specialty, don't they? You know, based on what you think they need, you know, treatment wise. Yeah, so I think last year, I think there were 10 million presentations to emergency departments across Australia and New Zealand. Um, that's a lot of activity. Yeah. Um, and a proportion of our patients, you know, we, we see everybody. So we see, you know, patients, you know, from the very young to the very old um, with the full spectrum of presentations. And I, I guess what's different about emergency medicine is we don't, we don't so much deal with diseases and diagnoses. We deal with problems and we mm. deal with constellations of symptoms and really part of what we're doing is 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 really it's putting order into the chaos um but it's also assessing risk and our approach is much more around not so much what is the diagnosis but actually you know does this patient need to have treatment right now to have some life-saving intervention uh, the reality is most patients actually you know might just have something benign and can be reassured and discharged and that's equally as important so we're sort of ex- i guess what we're experts in is is what we call the undifferentiated patient yeah. um, so we we have a lot in common with you know our colleagues in general practice for example but obviously we see a you know a higher acuity um, group of patients um, but uh, I think you know the challenge is is you know doing trying to do research in that environment where often you know our traditional approach has been based around diagnoses in in emergency we have to kind of craft our research a little bit differently and we have to be quite pragmatic mm-hmm. and we have to you know base our research around you know problems and symptoms that people might present with um, and and you know often we have a short time window and incomplete information so it's it's challenging but it's also what makes it fun yeah awesome um Jono, how did you get into research in particular in the ed what was your driving yeah so my first um experience of research in the ed was as a research nurse so um coming onto a team of researchers and being the person who approaches the patient uh, with the opportunity to be involved in clinical research. That was really interesting to me. And obviously the researchers at the time were asking some really interesting clinical questions um, on a wide variety of of patients and presentations. Um, So I thought it was really a great opportunity to have a different perspective um, on the patient journey um, to see you know, new new evidence kind of developed. But yeah, it was really being part of the team that was innovating and finding out new ways that we could care for people. That was kind of what attracted it to me at, at, at the start as a research nurse and kind of developed my interest into becoming a bit of a, also a, a, um, doing my own research projects a bit further down the line and managing a team of uh, research nurses. Mm. Any ambitions to do uh, a PhD or a master's or anything like that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I've been stopping and starting a master's for the last couple of years. Um, Which one? Um, So Master of Philosophy in um, focusing on emergency uh, nursing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mainly with a focus on patients who are experiencing sepsis, but also educating emergency patients about what sepsis is. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I also have an interest in research consent and that process and how it works in the emergency department, so. Yeah, it'll be challenging, I'd say. (laughs) Most of the projects I've been involved in, we get to sit down and explain things and we have time to go through a consent form. And I imagine you guys are just doing whatever you can. Yeah, I mean, it's really important, obviously, that patients get the opportunity to be involved in research. But when you're the patient with chest pain um, and you're in the emergency department and that's not where you expected to Mm. be during that day, um, it's a hard context to then have a consent conversation and make Mm. a consent decision. So that whole dynamic is really interesting. Yeah, I can imagine the ethics committees would have some hoops to jump through as well when you're dealing with people in that situation, you know. Things that you'd have to satisfy. I, th- I think it's important. Um, I think I think you're right. Uh, I think one of the things that's it's quite important to understand is that the vast majority of the research that we do um, is investigator initiated research. It's looking at routine clinical care. It's addressing questions around you know 
better diagnostic tests, more accurate or faster diagnostic tests. Um, and even our clinical trials are what we call comparative effectiveness trials. So often we'll have two treatments that are routinely used in practice, but we actually don't know which one is better. Mm -hmm. um, so the majority of patients that we're recruiting into research and emergency, um, we're essentially delivering usual practice. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is we're actually, you know, be more systematic about how we maybe evaluate things like outcomes, uh, and I think I think that's something that's not necessarily that well understood in the in the wider community because I think people often think about medical research as you know um, you know some novel you know drug or device, mm -hmm. and um, that that's really a very small proportion of what we do. And I think the ethics committees actually are, are quite well versed on understanding the whole um, spectrum of risk associated mm -hmm. with research. And certainly the view that we take is where where there's clinical uncertainty and equipoise, um, the ethical thing to do is actually to offer the patient the opportunity to participate in a trial. Yep. Um, because actually delivering treatment that we don't know is of benefit is actually not ethical. Could be worse. Um, yeah. So you can actually turn the whole argument around and mm. say, you know, well, actually, we're a large proportion of treatments that we deliver in medicine don't actually have level one evidence from <laughs> meta-analyses of randomized control yep. trials to support their use and mm -hmm. um, because they've been introduced into practice decades ago or they've just been because people think they're a good idea mm -hmm. and there's lots of examples in medicine where things that we have thought are helpful when someone's actually finally got around to evaluating them systematically have found maybe they're not as helpful as we thought and in some instances have actually even been harmful mm. um, so and again there's a, I think there's another um, myth that sometimes intervention and in doing things is always better mm. um, but was we know that sometimes actually just sitting back and letting mother nature fix the problem is often actually more effective Mm -hmm. um, and a great example John o mentioned was our pneumothorax trial, which we were involved in, um, that was led by um, Simon Brown, who used to be at the head of CCREM. Um, and that's patients presenting with a collapsed lung, mm -hmm. which is a common problem, pneumothorax. And um, they can present you know, quite dramatically. Their x-ray looks like the lungs completely collapsed. And often they have some pain and some breathlessness. But the conventional treatment for that was to put a chest strain in, which is an invasive procedure. It's painful, involves making a hole between the ribs, putting a catheter in. And um, in fact, what that trial showed was that actually, if you simply treat people with pain relief and just let it get better naturally, they, they get better as quickly um, and they have less time off work, less complications, and actually less likely to recur. Mm. So it's a great example where actually the need to, our, 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 our um, desire to intervene um, sometimes isn't always necessarily produce the best outcomes. And sometimes, mm. you know, just sitting back and waiting for things and watching and keeping an eye on people. So I think I think that's gets to the kind of the heart of what we're really trying to do is it's trying to, um, improve outcomes for patients it's not mm. always necessarily doing more for patients sometimes it's actually doing less mm. um, and that's actually just as important so does the body just spontaneously refix the lung correct yeah huh. after like, how long like is it uh, so like in that particular trial <laughs> the, so in the, in the pneumothorax tr trial so it was designed as a non-inferiority trial so yep. the primary outcome was eight weeks yeah mm -hmm. um and so what the uh, they did patients either got randomized to the conventional treatment which was to put the drain in and what you find is that you you know often you drain the air out the x-ray looks better mm -hmm. um and but in, the alternative there w was basically give the patient pain relief, check they were okay, mm -hmm. and then just followed them up and did x-rays every two weeks. And at eight weeks, there was no significant difference in mm -hmm. the rates of resolution. Mm -hmm. the, the group who actually just were conservatively managed, as I say, actually on all the patient-centered outcome measures actually did better. Okay. And I think the reason is that the air just gets gradually resolved yep. and mm -hmm. the little hole in the lung that's caused the problem in the first place just heals on its own. Mm -hmm. um, and and so that's, I think it's just it's a nice illustrative example of how actually you know the body's generally pretty good mm -hmm. at fixing itself. And our job, I think, as clinicians, is to know when we need to intervene. But it's also just as important to know when not to intervene. Yeah. Um, and that's that. I guess that's the art and the skill. Mm. Yeah, the the patient-centered outcomes you referred to. What what were they? 
Um, so um, time off work, uh, admissions to hospital, um, pain, breathlessness scores, um, complications. Mm. Um, so that all the things that sort of really that really matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. that's a good uh, kind of segue into the trial that you guys are doing now, which is about um, sepsis and is called Arise Fluid. So do you guys want to introduce that trial to us, what it's about? Yeah. One okay. of you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, septic shock is a really important um, problem in Australia that this trial is looking um, at a specific intervention when someone has um, low blood pressure because of septic shock. Um, there is a clinical question around whether they should have um, therapy with more fluids or with early vasopressors. Um, and that is actually the range of standard practice across Australia and New Zealand. Um, there's a lot of, there's been some proprietary, some previous work done by the investigator team in that regard that um, there is kind of this wide scope of normal practice where some clinicians will give um, a lot of fluid as um, resuscitation for hypotension in, in septic shock and, and some clinicians will start vasopressors earlier. And so this trial really uh, looks to um, investigate both of those normal standards of practice that are on, a, on each end of the spectrum um, and describe some, some patient-focused outcomes in that regard. Right. So what what is septic shock? So se sepsis is, um, I guess you can think of it as a really serious infection. Yeah. Um, so the official definition is where you have an infection that actually causes um, uh, a so-called dysregulated immune system that results in organ failure. And a proportion of people with, um, with sepsis actually get um, abnormalities of their circulation. So they blood pressure becomes very low and uh, their capillaries become very leaky, um, their heart doesn't pump properly uh, and they can get a range of other problems like renal failure, um, failure of their lungs, delirium and so on. So sepsis is, a, is the severe end of the spectrum um, of infections and um, it's accounts for probably, um, there are probably estimated to be about 50,000 cases of sepsis each year in Australia and it accounts for about Eight, about eight and a half thousand deaths um, and it's a disease that can happen at any age but has a predominance in the very young and very old so really the first year of life and then older adults and we're certainly seeing increasing um, sepsis um, for a variety of reasons um, to do with uh, you know it's a worldwide obviously sepsis is a massive problem infectious diseases but even in, in countries like Australia where we you know we have antibiotics and we have good levels of sanitation, we're still seeing an increase. And it's it's probably a range of factors. It's to do with, you know, uh, a, a, a frailer, older population with more comorbidities. Um, things like antimicrobial resistance are an increasing problem. So we're, you know, now seeing patients with, with you know, difficult to treat um, bugs. Um, uh, more invasive procedures, you know, people having, you know, pacemakers put in, having lots of things. So, you know, people having chemotherapy. So mm -hmm. there's certainly um, increased incidence of sepsis. And, you know, the proportion of people, sepsis counts for, you know, more deaths than bre breast cancer and prostate cancer each year in Australia. That's so not, it's um, well advertised, it's, is it? It's, it's, and, and that's one of the mm -hmm. challenges is because we don't, we don't really have good ways of reporting and measuring it. Mm -hmm. um, because sepsis is a condition which everyone, in, it's kind of, everywhere in the hospital, there's no one sort of craft group that looks after it. So, you know, heart attacks get looked after by the heart doctors, the strokes get looked after by the brain doctors, mm. the cancer gets looked after by the cancer doctors, but there's no sepsis doctors looking after sepsis. I guess that's um, why it's in the ED then. So ED and intensive care, but yeah. in fact, you know, the sickest patients end up in intensive care. But in fact, in our um, uh, hospital, we, you know, we actually, we studied the number of patients who come through the ED with sepsis, um, and actually most of them get admitted to 
general wards. Mm. Um, so it's, and that might be a medical ward, it might be a urology ward, it might be an orthopedic ward. Um, so again, getting back to the, the trial, Jonah said there's this particular um, subset, really the sickest group of patients who have this shock syndrome. So their blood pressure is low, they're not perfusing their organs properly, and it's a real medical emergency. Um, and the controversy is really around how we treat low blood pressure. Um, so the conventional um, approach is to give people intravenous fluids. Um, and that's uh, often historically quite large volumes of fluids are given over the first 24 hours. And the second line treatment is to give some medications called you know, vasopressor time medication, which you give through a drip intravenously. And that just helps to raise the blood pressure as well. Um, what in the last 10, 15 years has been sort of an increasing awareness that um, certainly excessive fluids are bad for patients. Um, and so we don't really know what the right amount of fluid is to give, whether some, and some people give a lot of fluid still. Other clinicians have moved towards giving a lot less fluid and starting the medications much sooner. And when you actually survey practice uh, really around the world now, because of this uncertainty, um, actually the whole spectrum is there. And what we're really trying to do is then say, getting back to this idea of a comparative effectiveness trial. So these are patients who are sick and are unwell, who have a high risk of mortality. And um, by randomizing patients to one or other of these approaches, um, you know, we hope to be able to actually work out which is actually the better in terms of patient outcomes. I feel like this is going to be a really weird comparison, but I feel like fluids in general in medicine are kind of equivalent to what's happened in like the dietary world with eggs where like for 10 years eggs are, are fantastic food and then suddenly everyone hates eggs and no one eats <laughs> eggs anymore and then suddenly people eat eggs again because they're fantastic. I feel mm. like with fluids it's kind of the yep. same thing where it's this wave mm. of like fluids is the best thing ever that you should give it to every patient and then suddenly you shouldn't give them anymore. Is that is that right? Am I have I got the story correct? No, I, I, look, I, I think that's a really good analogy, <laughs> yeah. and I think I think what you've identified is I, I think what we we like to think as clinicians we're rational people, yeah. Um, but the reality is that we're as susceptible to um, our biases and the trends um, and what everyone else does around us as everyone else. We actually don't have any particular insights that are different, even though sometimes doctors like to think that they do. <laughs> And um, so I think that's a great analogy because I think I think what happened was intravenous fluids have been around for you know more than a century. Mm -hmm. They were introduced into practice you know in the late nineteenth century, way before anyone ever did clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know it wasn't actually until really the last twenty years that people have actually started systematically looking at fluids. But that's been around comparing different types of fluids. So comparing like salt solutions with say colloid you know, um, solutions and, you know, albumin, and then there's lots of synthetic starch type solutions and so on. Um, it's only really more recently that people started the question of dose. And I think fluids, we've, we've our thinking has much more moved towards thinking of fluids like any drug. Mm. So, so there's benefits and there's also harms. And there's questions around dose responsiveness. Uh, and so thinking about fluids, it's not just, oh, you can give them and there's no cost to it that we know there are downsides to giving giving fluids, but they're also beneficial. Um, and I think we, you know, we've seen how trauma care, for example, has changed in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years that, you know, it used to be that, you know, someone came in, you know, with hemorrhagic shock from trauma, we'd get resuscitated with crystalloid until we actually found out that actually that's really not good for them. Mm. Um, it dilutes their what clotting factors they have left, it makes them hypothermic and all of these things are bad. And so we've moved in trauma care, you be much more judicious about using crystalloids and, and, and using blood products much earlier, because we know that. Um, with medical shock and things like sepsis, you know, obviously these are questions that remain. And um, certainly I've seen my, in my time practicing, you know, we certainly moved away from giving really large volumes of fluids that were perhaps were 20 years ago um, to being much more judicious. Um, but even still, there are questions around, particularly around initial resuscitation. I think there's now good evidence for patients who are already in the hospital about how we manage fluid balance. But what we don't really know is that initially when the patient arrive, first arrives in the ED mm. and they're in shock, how to actually resuscitate them. And that's really what we're focusing on with this trial.
Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you, and now back to the show. What was the sort of the physiological, biomedical kind of theory behind the fluids what treatment? Yeah, like, what, what was that? What was underpinning <laughs> that? So, um, as I mentioned, what what happens in sepsis is various uh, things happen pathophysiologically, and and there's a lot of complexity to it, um, but. Um, you can probably distill the main changes that happen in septic shock to, um, first of all, the capillaries become very leaky. So there's extravasation of fluid from the uh, from the circulation and into the interstitial. Yeah, like yeah, cool. yeah. So your capillaries become leaky. The second thing is often these patients are, have been sick at home for a while. They've not been eating and drinking. They might have had vomiting and diarrhea. So there's, they've often had reduced intake as well. And they might have an increased respiratory rate and losing you know, fluid that way. So often they're fluid deplete um, when they first arrive. The other things that happen in sepsis is that the inflammatory response that's happening throughout the body um, causes the blood, major blood vessels to actually relax. Um, and so they, they, um, they lose that sort of peripheral uh, vasoconstriction and the ability to maintain their blood pressure. Uh, and the third thing that can happen is often the heart itself. If the patient's very sick, the heart won't actually pump as efficiently. Um, so the rationale for giving fluids is really to replace the fluid losses, um, but also to kind of prime the pump. So if we think back to our undergraduate um, physiology and the Starling curve, is that your stroke volume actually is related to your uh, venous return. And if you increase venous return, you'll actually get an increase in stroke volume up to a certain point. I feel like that was a very doctory thing. <laughs> so that's that's yeah. what that's essentially what the rationale for giving fluids yeah. is. And then what about for um, the vasopressors? Is it similar rationale? Or? Yeah. So what the vasopressors do is basically make those um, blood vessels, so the major blood vessels that are dilated, um, increase increase the tone in the walls of the blood vessels. So actually, by squ- literally squeezing the blood vessels, mm-hmm. bringing the blood pressure up. Um, and so in very, in very simple terms, that's, that's how vasopressors work. And so what we're really trying to do, we do for most patients, they get an element of both of those treatments. What we're really trying to work out is the right balance between the two. Mm. So, okay. So that's kind of like the theory behind this trial. So where are you at with this trial right now? What's the current picture? So we're into how many patients, Jono? 98 patients. Yeah. And we're looking to enroll a thousand across uh, Australia and New Zealand so currently we have how many sites so I think we've got 22 sites currently enrolling uh, across Australia and looking to get 50 sites on board so we recently um, launched the trial in New Zealand so we've got um, three hospitals in New Zealand are going to start recruiting in the next few months and probably hope another few earlier in the new year but eventually 50 sites across Australia, New Zealand. Mm. Mm. And the, are these uh, emergency departments? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the trial recruits in the emergency department, mm. but a lot of these patients um, end up in the intensive care unit. So the trial is actually run um, as a collaboration between the um, ASIM, the Emergency Medicine College Clinical Trials Network, and also the ANZICS, so the Intensive Care um, Society Clinical Trials Group. So mm-hmm. we've got a sort of cross-disciplinary management committee, uh, and it's very much a collaborative enterprise between, and again, the example we gave before, that, you know, emergency medicine, we don't really operate in isolation. We operate in collaboration with our with our colleagues. So um, certainly working with the uh, intensive care mm-hmm. um, uh, researchers um, mm-hmm. and, you know, across the the, the sort of the whole patient journey really particularly over that first uh, 24 hours during which we deliver the intervention and what's it like recruiting these patients because they're obviously very sick so i feel like it could be kind of difficult to identify and recruit and get consent and all that yeah there's um it's amazing so here at royal perth there's an amazing team of research nurses who are on the floor in the emergency department looking for these patients all the time and when they come in, there's quite a uh, small window of opportunity to 
involve them in research and give them the opportunity to participate. So uh, there's a number of inclusion and exclusion criteria, but one of those, um, because of the clinical question that we're asking, is around how much fluid have they had? Um, so they have to have had at least one litre of fluid, and that can be in the ambulance on the way through or in the emergency department. Um, and they have to have had their first dose of antibiotics, um, but they can't have had more than two litres of fluid. <laughs> mm. So in a um, patient who is critically unwell and is in a resuscitative phase, um, the <laughs> time difference between first litre and second litre can be quite short. So, mm-hmm. um, And there's a lot of work to do to recruit a patient. So the research nurses are on the floor looking at these patients as they're um, being resuscitated and... Um, identifying those who are eligible and um, giving them the option to participate. There must be like a flurry of excitement that happens when there is a patient then because like because it is such a short period of time I feel like I'd be like oh my god there's a patient let's go. <laughs> yeah I mean, we've got really good engagement from our clinical yeah. colleagues so you know we're we're researchers but we're also clinicians um, and you know so we work really closely so we have a really good system where you know we we um, uh, because sepsis is a kind of medical emergency, we already have quite well-defined systems mm-hmm. for identifying those patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's actually the most important element is when someone comes in and they're sick is actually identifying them. So our, our clinical colleagues are really good at saying, oh, this patient has got septic shock, they will give us a call early. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do, for this trial, it, you know, it is challenging because it's for a number of reasons, um, but so, you know, of, often um, you know we, we like we they call us early. We might screen a number of patients who actually end up not being eligible, and that's fine. But we sort of need to do that to be on the spot to um, to recruit um, when they are eligible. Um, and you mentioned about the you know the consent process. So again, one of the things is that we have approval to enrol patients under a waiver of consent. Um, because this, these patients are clearly sick, um, they've got a time critical illness, and uh, they need to be treated straight away. Um, and actually, delaying treatment while we get consent from, say, a family member is is clearly problematic. So, mm-hmm. for that reason, the ethics committee um, uh, and is has approved the trial because it is a comparative effectiveness trial. We're giving treatments that they would otherwise be normally receiving. Um, so we can randomise the patient, initiate the treatment. Um, and then we can uh, approach the patient when they're well or the family members um, and talk about the trial and they have the option to, at that point, you know, withdraw from it. Um, so it's a model that's really quite well established in critical care. Mm-hmm. Um, and really without those kind of um, approaches, we, we wouldn't be able to resolve important clinical questions like this. Mm. So my question now is you've identified a patient who meets the criteria. So I'm so are there sort of two arms? So they're going to get randomised to one of the two arms, and if so, what do each of those two arms get in terms of treatment? Yeah, so great question. Um, so once the patient's randomised, there yeah, there's two arms. There's the more fluids arm or the more vasopressors arm earlier kind of uh, protocol, um, but it's all based on the patient's condition. So. We then obviously reassess the patient to make sure that they still have hypotension and we still are asking that clinical question, how do we treat that hypotension? And if that's true, then we follow the the path that um, they've been randomised to. Mm -hmm. In the fluids arm, they'll get an initial, um, an additional bolus of fluid um, of a a litre and then um, clinically reviewed and get um, further boluses of 500 mils. of the fluid of the clinician's choice. Um, and we're really looking in, in that, in that um, to um, treat hypertension with fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the other um, group of patients who get um, smaller boluses of fluid if required and starting uh, vasopressors early. Um, and it's all about reassessment. So if the patient's blood pressure resolves, uh, we don't necessarily have to give further bolus. It's just when there's that clinical question of what do I, how do I treat the hypotension is when we follow that arm down. Um, obviously, when people are in um, crisis and that one treatment, either the fluid or the vasopressors uh, first, isn't resolving their, their problem, they can actually have both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So you end up with um, 
two groups of patients, maybe that some of them have had both vasopressors and fluids, but one group's going to have hopefully significantly more fluids and one group's going to have significantly less and more vasopressors so that um, then we have two, two groups to compare. Mm. So are you guys going to be comparing these in like the intention to treat or like your real world? So, so it's intention to treat yeah. is the analysis, and obviously, this the nature of this is this is this is a pragmatic clinical trial, and for obvious reasons, we can't blind it, yeah. um, or we can't blind the intervention. So, yeah. um, so really, what what we're about, and again, it gets back to to speaking to the whole, you know, we've got to be pragma pragmatists, mm. um, and it's got to be real world, it's got to be deliverable. So, at all times. The, the treating clinician actually retains control over what's happening with the patient. So, so one of the things that's really important is there does actually have to be equipoise on the part of the clinician um, because some patients clearly, you know, one arm or the other of the trial wouldn't be suitable and that's an exclusion. Mm -hmm. So really the patients, it's where the treating clinician, I've given some fluid, I'm still concerned the blood pressure is low and I don't actually know what the right treatment is. They again get randomised. As Sean says, they'll either get randomised to be given more fluid or they get randomised to stop the fluid and start the vasopressor. Uh, and then titrate one or the other. So, so what I guess what we're really doing is we're giving uh, the the treating clinicians at the bedside, depending on what arm of the trial is is in, we're giving them some parameters around mm -hmm. which they can manage the the patient. So, it, it it's it, it, and all of this is about balancing the I guess the scientific imperatives with also the practical realities and patient safety and allowing clinicians to retain you know, discretion, because it's, this is a heterogeneous condition, it's a dynamic situation and mm -hmm. things can change. Uh, so ultimately the treating clinician can, you know, if new information arises or the patient's condition changes, they can override it. In terms of the analysis, the primary analysis, as you say, will be by intention to treat. Um, but one of the things we will, we will be is, is looking at protocol compliance and protocol deviations. And we expect that there will be a number of protocol deviations mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the reality. Um, but what, what we hope is that we'll be able to, you know, have sufficient difference in the fluid administered over the first 24 hours that we can actually, you know, that's have that what we expect is a clinically meaningful difference, um, mm -hmm. which may translate into differences in outcome. Mm. So what is the main outcome uh, no more hypertension. So the primary outcome of the trial is uh, a composite of um, mortality and survival. So it's uh, it's called days alive out of hospital or day mm -hmm. 90. So basically what that means is the number of days the patient has spent not in hospital mm -hmm. at 90 days, um, but patients who die get zero days. Mm -hmm. So what that accounts for is obviously patient, patients who die, but also the length of time in hospital, which has you know, reasonably good correlation with how sick they are and also relates to longer term outcomes. Um, in addition to that, we'll also be looking at, um, you know, the quality of survival, quality of life and disability at 12 months, six and 12 months post randomization um, and a range of other um, outcome measures and including some economic analyses as well. So it's a pretty comprehensive suite of outcome measures. It, it, just based on those outcomes, it feels as though sepsis it has a very high mortality rate. Yeah. So overall, um, uh, patients who get to ICU with septic shock probably yeah. have about fifteen to twenty percent mortality. Yeah. Okay. In this particular group, probably about ten to fifteen percent. Yeah. Um, but it's still a sick group of patients. Yeah. Mm. I was going to ask. Um, so this, the type of disability that you might be observing later on, what, what sorts of conditions are those? Yeah, that can um, range from anything that looks a bit like um, post-ICU syndrome, so um, a bit of fuzziness in the head, a bit of you know, lethargy and um, uh, muscle weakness, anything um, from that through to um, intellectual disability or... Um, you know, people have lost limbs mm -hmm. because um, they've, they've been necrotic or um, different various surgeries that are required uh, to treat the source of yeah. the infection. Okay. Um, yeah, so there's, there's quite a wide range, but they can be very significant. Mm, that sounds quite serious, some of those. Yeah. Related to circulation and that sort of thing, I'm assuming yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. So there was one study, yeah. I think, that showed that of um, patients who 
um, are admitted to ICU with sepsis and are discharged home, um, a third of them haven't returned to their previous level of functioning at six months. Mm, okay. So that's that's significant. Yeah. Um, you know, for young people, that's loss of earning capacity. Yeah. And for an older person, it might be loss of the ability to live independently. Yeah. So they, I mean, the costs, um, healthcare costs are high, but yeah. the costs of the community are, are significant. Yes, all about qualities and dallies. Yeah. Just going, going back to some yeah, health yeah, economic stuff public, that we did. Public, yeah. public health. Oh, yeah. It, it, and, and, I, and I think, um, you know, we're only just kind of getting a handle on the, some of the long-term consequences of sepsis. I think historically, because it is a high mortality condition, the focus has actually been on that early mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think there's, you know, we, we have actually seen reductions in mortality in the last you know 10 20 years i think and i think that's that's obviously a positive mm. but i think also what we're seeing is more people surviving but with significant problems and mm-hmm. ongoing life life changing disability mm. and um you know we're, we're perhaps not as um set up in the health sector to manage it in, in a structured and organized way as we are for perhaps some other conditions like stroke or cancer for example and mm. um, so there's a lot of work and interest in in that area and I think that's probably that's why days alive and out of hospital at 90 days is really important to patients and survivors of sepsis is, you know, can I get back to my looking after my kids or working or um, functioning as I did before? That's a really key outcome. And um, a lot of the, uh, you know, patient advocates um, have said, you know, before they were discharged, they'd never heard of sepsis before. And they didn't really know where to go to get information about what life is like after sepsis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that in Australia, I think, is developing and uh, we're doing better at slowly, but we're really at the early stages of being able to provide um, for that patient journey. might have been a question for earlier but um, what are some of the drivers or the causes of sepsis some of the, some of the common things that pe- people have happened to them that leads to sepsis uh, so in uh, in our setting the most common um, uh, presentations people with sort of lung infections so you know pneumonia mm-hmm. um, uh, followed by you know urinary tract infections uh, kidney infections and skin Mm-hmm. Infections and that probably accounts for about eighty percent of the patients who come through the ED. Um, the other group is patients, you know, with intra-abdominal problems. So you know they might have you know uh, you know a surgical problem, mm-hmm. uh, bowel perforation, or some sort of abscess. Um, so that's a larger proportion. Uh, uh, and then and then there's another range of uh, you know people who have perhaps you know uh, an indwelling you know line and they've had or they've had some invasive procedure and they've got you know bacteria into their bloodstream through some other um, mechanism. Um, so the what, what's what one of the things we don't sort of fully understand is you know most people who get an infection uh, get better. Mm-hmm. with maybe with a course of antibiotics like most people who get streptococcal pneumonia you know will get some penicillin and they might even be able to be managed in the community by the gp and they'll get better um what we don't fully understand is why some people with that same organism end up in intensive care with multi-organ failure and uh, so that's and it's it's probably relates to um you know uh, factors to do with the infecting bacteria mm-hmm. um both the bacterial load and also the virulence of that particular strain mm-hmm. but there's probably host factors as well and some of those are obvious you know things like diabetes things like age things like being immunosuppressed mm-hmm. but there's probably also genetic susceptibilities as to why some people are, get more severe consequences from infections than, than others mm-hmm. and uh, you know we we don't really have a good understanding and we're certainly starting with some of the work that's now going on looking at you know really interesting you know genomic analysis and transcriptomic analysis and right trying to really drill down a little bit more into you know some of the actual um pathophysiological pathways that might be you know be at play mm-hmm. um but it's unlikely we're going to find you know a single 
you know, thing that we can manipulate with a drug that's going to change the outcomes. I, I think like a lot of things, it's a bit like, it's mostly about prevention. Mm-hmm. So things like, you know, good hygiene, vaccination, um, but it's also about the community, people in the community and also clinicians being aware of the early signs and symptoms, mm-hmm. um, which can often be challenging because it can often be quite an insidious, non-specific um, presentation. So making sure that when people do present with features that we're alert to it and that we actually actively seek it out because we know that early treatment is actually the, the most effective thing um, mm-hmm. to, to actually get the best outcome. Yeah. All right. So you have 10% of your, your thousand cases or almost 10%. Um, and I know that you're not meant to be biased in any way about the outcomes, but what, which arm of the project do you think is going to win? Do you think there is going to be a significant difference with one of them or, or are they both the same? I, What's the feelings? I, I, I genuinely don't know. Yeah. And I think, I think there is, there is evidence um, that would support either um, so the, the the problem is that that is not high quality evidence. Yeah. So it's generally observational mm-hmm. evidence, um, and there there is large observational studies, both supporting giving fluids, and also supporting not giving fluids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a number of clinical trials um, done, but they're all small, mm. um, or they're done in different populations, like in ICU populations. So uh, I think and it's the question we all keep answering ourselves and there aren't other trials going on around the world. There's a trial in the United States, there's a trial in the UK looking at the same thing, um, same question. And, uh, you know, so we're constantly as new data emerges, you know, that would suggest that mm. uh, one treatment is better than the other. And that's obviously what the Data Safety Committee does. That's one of the things they do. Um, but I, I genuinely say I, I have equipoise um, yeah. and I don't have, and I, I think the, the thing is that we all are biased by our own experiences um, and, you know, we can all recall individual patients who've done well with a particular intervention. Yeah. And there's numerous examples where our own individual opinions about things, when you actually systematically evaluate it in a large number of patients according to objective criteria, you end up with a completely opposite <laughs> Mm-hmm. outcome which is why we do trials yeah i guess anecdotal evidence is quite yeah. persuasive you know it's, it's like the yeah. people that live to 110 but have like drunk wine every day and smoked yeah. Yeah. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> mostly <laughs> mostly in france apparently that's right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and spain yeah or japan <laughs> where they eat lots of fish that's right mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 that was actually going to be one of my questions is was there other evidence that was guiding this or are you guys like the first in the world to be looking at this specifically, the way you're looking at it? Um, well, this has been a program of work that's been happened over a, a number of years. Mm-hmm. So before you get to the point of doing a randomized clinical trial, um, you actually have to demonstrate a few things. So you've got to demonstrate there's variation in practice. You've got to demonstrate that there's uncertainty and equipoise. Um, and you've got to demonstrate feasibility of your intervention. So we've actually done all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to actually get, you know, funding um, yeah. and to be able to get approval from the ethics committee, you actually need to be able to demonstrate all that. And um, so um, and again, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, isn't necessarily fully understood in the wider community is, is mm. when it comes to clinical trials is it not just we don't just wake up one morning and think <laughs> I'm just going to just I'm just going to test this thing because yeah. I've thought it up. Um, you can't do that. You know, yeah. you actually have to go through a process mm. of, you know, and whether that's, that might be based on observational studies, it might be based on, you know, preclinical work. Mm. But in order to get to the point of doing a clinical trial, you mm. actually have to assimilate all that evidence mm-hmm. um, to ensure that your trial is going to be, you know, the funder wants to have a reasonable chance of success and importantly that it's ethical to do it as well. Yeah. I think those ideas throughout the community are kind of, spread spread around by stories like um the stomach ulcer and mm. you know <laughs> Nobel prizes and things like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just, i'll do it myself and fix it myself <laughs> yeah. which, which i don't know if you're aware was was actually in this in this building yeah yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we, and we have a library named after him we do yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so uh, with a data analyst nerd hat on um <laughs> How exhaustive is the list of characteristics that you guys are collecting data on on the patients themselves in terms of their 
demographics and then maybe their morbidities and that sort of thing to, to do analysis and see if you can tease out where a, a treatment might work better for this group of people. Yeah, I think um, in the database there's about 280 variables, I think, we've mm -hmm. counted. Um, so, yeah, everything from their demographics to their comorbidity profile, yeah. um, following them through to, um, yeah, look at their disability status yeah. um, at long-term follow-up. Okay. Um, and everything in between. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, we have lots of um, ED data points, like from we look at the ambulance trip, we look mm -hmm. at their journey up until the time that they become eligible. We count things between their eligibility and their randomization. Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of granularity there, oh, and I think good. that should give a good um, basis for analysing a good outcome at the end. Mm. What's it like getting the consistency between the multiple sites that you have? This yeah. is a loaded question because that's what yeah. I'm dealing with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we have this great data manager. Uh, <laughs> take it. Um, yeah, no, we actually do have a really good coordinator out of ANZIX called Belinda, and she is amazing at um, – she's, you know, helped to create – um, with the investigator team, a really clear data dictionary and um, early auditing and monitoring of um, the data that's collected mm -hmm. and how that's being uh, kind of managed across sites and communicated to the people who are actually collecting and entering the data. Um, there's yeah, very specific definitions for each variable mm -hmm. and a consistent approach to dealing with um, questions about that. Yeah, and I think importantly, I mean, the reason we do multi-centre research is obviously to generate that external validity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's all well and good doing, you know, in a in a tertiary academic hospital, but actually the real world is, you know, most patients are managed in general hospitals that don't have that infrastructure. Uh, and so Arise Fluids has, you know, we have uh, hospitals all the way from, you know, urban tertiary hospitals all the way through to, you know, regional uh, rural base hospitals and that's that's really important and one of the things is it's also it, it so it's about getting that external validity making sure that the trials actually being you know recruiting patients actually where they're actually treated um but it's also about building capacity to do this kind of work as well and and you know sub supporting our colleagues to be able to you know who perhaps are not as um, don't have the research support and infrastructure in their hospital, mm -hmm. um, so so we we have to be you know we've been very uh, keep using the word pragmatic, but you know the, we have to be quite parsimonious about the data we collect. We'll be realistic. Uh, we can't just collect everything for the sake of it. It's actually <laughs> got to be each data point is looked at. Do we actually need this? How is this going to? What table is this going to go into in the final paper? Because yep. people are time poor and everything costs money and time. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we we've got to you know if we make it too hard, we're not going to recruit. That's the bottom line. Yep. So um, and as John mentioned, you know we we're really fortunate to work with the. Um, Anzit Research Centre at Monash University, who are um, coordinating the trial, and we've, um, you know, Belinda's a very experienced clinical trials coordinator, um, and and you know that's invaluable because mm -hmm. having somebody who actually can, um, you know, it is a lot of it's about you know communication and building relationships and mm -hmm. supporting, um, and and you know we're all learning as we go along. Any clinical trial is a is a is a learning journey, and even though you've you, you come up with this protocol that you think is perfect and then you start and start recruiting patients like, and, oh <laughs> and all these questions come up and things you haven't thought of yeah. so you you have to be adaptable and you have to be able to kind of um you know uh reappraise things you know and recognize if there are things that aren't working do we have to make changes and so on um so it's it's an iterative dynamic process really all the way through um and um you know but certainly having the relationship in working with uh, those hospitals that perhaps aren't as research experienced is a really important, essential part of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, do you, do you guys have any other things in the pipeline? We're probably getting close to finishing up, so. What's the next steps? Uh, well, the first thing is that we're almost at 100, so okay. we're looking forward to that 10% and um, there's initial audit that happens around um, 10, 20% uh, just to look at the validation across sites. And we're really excited to get some um, enrolments from our New Zealand colleagues. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be a really big step, I think, in making it. John is doing some interesting research of his own around 
sepsis awareness, but also mm. around consent processes? Did you want to? Yeah, so um, one, of, one of my studies is called the Informed Sepsis Study. So it's looking at how we tell people about this thing called sepsis that a lot of people who have it don't even know what it is. Mm. Um, so it's looking at, um, you know, giving them paper information or giving them a, a video or some electronic information and comparing uh, the patient's experience of learning about sepsis, testing how much they remember about it a month later, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, trying to get a view on how best we can communicate these really important clinical um, complex things mm-hmm. to um, as many people as possible. So like multimedia, whatever whatever works with for that demographic or... Yeah. And make it available. Yeah. 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 And especially in an emergency context where someone's really stressed because um, they're in the emergency department and they have their own personal emergency mm-hmm. in that context, where how's the best way to communicate with mm-hmm. them? Right. Well, thoughts of saying what you what you find. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Definitely relevant to public health and definitely. prevention, which is what we're both in. So we're all about prevention. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. We are all about prevention. As much as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, if there's nothing else, guys, it's been really fascinating. Um, thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. And yeah, so, uh, yeah, we look forward to reading some excellent results before too long. Yeah. Great. Thank thanks you. Thanks for having us. That was our chat with Stephen and Jono. I thought it was really, really good. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah, no, it's opened my eyes to a few things. And um, yeah, look, I've never been involved in clinical research, so I don't really know. No. You know, the, the ethics considerations and some of the things they were talking about, you know, um, and the, the steps that you've got to take before you can satisfy ethics requirements, mm-hmm. you know, about certain conditions need to be met around a diversity of practice yeah. so you know practitioners do things a different way depending on who they are um but yeah it all makes sense it, it does yeah. yeah it's surprising how much it makes sense <laughs> and i think considering that it's medicine and my personal opinion on medicine is that like people just kind of do what they want um because there's a there's not a lot of evidence out for many of the treatments um so the fact that it all makes sense and that there is going to be an outcome where something is an effective treatment for sepsis, mm. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I'll, I'll be fascinated to see if one of these two alternative options for treating does better, or if yeah. they're roughly the same. Yeah, and yeah. it's. I think one of the one of the limitations though is that, um, you know, if they both end up being the same, is it better than nothing? Because we, because mm. they're not comparing to like a, a kind of a reference. conservative reference control yeah. group. They're comparing it to each other. I, I think they probably answered that question themselves. Probably when they said that people need treatment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they get away with having a, a non-treated yeah. reference group. Yeah, but what um, if there's something else? Yeah, but yeah, <sighs> yeah, it'd be interesting to know. Um, it would be. And I think where they were talking about the trial being pragmatic which mm. we've actually mm-hmm. in an early episode had an expert on pragmatic trials uh, on the podcast Marek Sverenstein yep. so go back and have a listen to that if you're at all I have interested. no idea which number that is though it's, it's got to be fairly early days I think so yeah, yeah. it was pre-COVID <laughs> ah yes very early on then <laughs> yeah so that's yeah episode 10 or something yeah you know, somewhere around that area um, but I'll be interested to see if this trial if there's scope for this trial to be expanded to other countries yeah particularly different settings like mm-hmm. developing countries and, and not yeah. you know developed countries with advanced health systems mm, and I thought it was really interesting to to kind of hear that emergency medicine as a whole is not um, as well documented I guess mm. in in other countries um, I think yeah there was something really interesting that I read or heard and I will not be able to give any form of reference for this information. <laughs> so I don't actually know whether I should. Um, but there was something about um, intubation rates in in some other countries where intubation is quite a common thing mm. um, in Australia. can be used quite well as used in an emergency setting, whereas um, I think it was in the Philippines or something, they did their first ever intubation um, this year. 
This is helping people breathe. This is helping. Yeah. So this is a yeah. tube down your throat yeah. um, while you're sedated, and then you can control their, their breathing. Yeah. Um, and it was the first time that they'd done it in an emergency medicine setting. Yeah. Um, and now I remember it was an abstract for a conference that I was looking at. Okay. So <laughs> they were very excited about it. Um, yeah. So the fact that emergency medicine is not, it's, it's almost a baby science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 1982 or 83, I think mm. it was saying is when the College of yeah. Emergency Physicians was started. So. Yeah, it's relatively new, new isn't it? Yeah. Compared to like cardiovascular oh, specialization. It's been going on for centuries, yeah. I feel. <laughs> and that's about you know, oncology and that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fascinating stuff. But yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good stuff. If people listening out there enjoyed it, how do they get in touch with us? They can tweet us at health means what. They can email us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com. That's right. Just dot com. Dot com, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Um, yeah. And you can also uh, come chat on Facebook as well, yeah. Meaning of Health Podcast. Yeah. Um, we're on all of them. I feel like, I don't know if you've been kept keeping up to date with the, the Twitter debacle. I have been listening uh, a little bit to some of the snippets of news that oh, have come out. Oh, God, it just makes me sad. Um, yeah. Anyway, we might need to investigate other forms of social media. Um, I suspect Instagram might be on the horizon. Yeah, I feel like Instagram maybe. would be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I can bring myself to do TikTok. I watch a lot of it, but <laughs> I just... Oh. Posting it's a different story. Yeah, right? very different story. <laughs> yeah, the good thing about Instagram, I don't know if you do photos on TikTok or if it's all videos. It's all videos. Yeah, so yeah. the good thing about Instagram is you can put photos on, yeah. which is a little, a little better. better than... Yeah, and you can edit it and make yourself <laughs> yeah. look better. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, watch this space. Yeah. Um, we'll see what... Mr. Musk does with his <laughs> his new venture. Yeah, um, oh yeah it's, it does look increasingly precarious. It does. <laughs> it does. It's a, a possible sinking ship, but yeah. we'll see. We'll find out. Yeah. You know, you could make it better. Who knows? One thing that is for certain is that we'll be back with another episode. We will be before too long. Absolutely. And so we'll speak with everyone then. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.